So before I read the passage this morning, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 9, let me just give you a a brief orientation. Last week in chapter 8, Paul told the Corinthians they need to surrender their rights, the rights within their Christian liberty, in order to love the brethren, in order to let the gospel work in their weaker brothers' lives. This week in chapter 9, what we're reading is Paul's using himself as an example of doing that very thing in his own life. He is surrendering his rights, his, his liberties, his freedoms, in order to serve others with the gospel. That's what's taking place. So if you, if you follow along on the sermon uh, outline that you have, you'll see this theme. In the Christian life, we have an abundance of rights by faith in Christ. But we must discipline ourselves to surrender those rights and make ourselves gospel servants to all in order to win some to Christ. Listen as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, I'll read from beginning to end and then we'll dive in. This is the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in the hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, We have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free of all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew, 
in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside of the law, I became as one outside of the law, not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the Word of God. Now in chapter 8, Paul, remember, tells the so-called strong in the church to surrender their rights out of love for their brothers and sisters who have a weak conscience in the matter of eating food sacrificed to idols. Their knowledge has puffed them up, and it's far more important for them to pursue love. In the very last verse of that chapter, of chapter 8, he sets himself up as an example to them when he says, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. That's the last verse of chapter 8. You see, Paul is already anticipating their pushback. He knows what they're going to say. They're going to say, what? But we have rights. We have knowledge that idols are nothing. We have our Christian liberty. We're free to eat meat. So Paul says, the very first verse of chapter 9, You're free. Am I not free? Even more, am I not an apostle? Now, you need to know that Paul's not playing an authority card here when he says he's an apostle. He's playing an example card. He's going to show that as an apostle, he has certain rights as an apostle. So so he does say, incidentally, yes, he is an apostle. He has seen Jesus. Remember his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. And the believers in Corinth are the evidence of his faithful apostleship. He knew nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And in the demonstration of the spirit and power, they placed their faith in the power of God instead of the wisdom of men, and they were saved. And Paul's fired up. I mean, you can hear his passion. This is my defense to those who would examine me. But he does not go on to give a defense of his apostleship. He gives a defense of his apostolic rights. The so-called strong ones are so sure that they have knowledge of their rights before their weaker brethren, right? So in order to make his point, Paul is making sure that they have knowledge of his apostolic rights before them, the church, he and his ministry team. And it's like rapid fire. Do we not have the right to be supported by the church? Do the other apostles and their wives, if they bring them, not have the right to be supported by the church? 
Do the brothers of the Lord not have the right to be supported by the church? By the way, this is the only place in Scripture where Jesus' half-brothers, like James, like Jude, are afforded rights. And, and then he says, what about Cephas, which is Peter? I mean, the implication here is that the Corinthians are well aware that the apostles have rights to be supported by the church, and that they probably did support Peter when he came, and he might have brought his wife with him. Then to justify his apostolic rights, Paul lists three examples of laborers and the absolute common sense right for them to be supported from the fruits of their labor. That's what he's doing. A soldier doesn't have to go buy his own sword and shield, does he? He doesn't have to take a second job and moonlight so that he can afford food, does he? No. He enlists and all his equipment is provided to him. And the army feeds him so that he's healthy and strong and able to fight. No one would work in your vineyard if he wasn't paid and allowed to eat some of the fruit that he labored for day after day, week after week, season after season to produce. Even a goat herder gets paid. The lowly shepherd gets to take home some of the milk from the flocks that he attends. You see, they all expect and warrant some benefit from their labor. Paul's apostolic right to financial support from the church is reflected in everyday life and common sense. But that might not be convincing to these strong brothers who have knowledge. So Paul explores their knowledge a little bit of the scripture. Does not the law say the same? He says to them. Doesn't, doesn't the word of God back me up on this? And Paul quotes Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. And then he adds, is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? Isn't he talking about us? So which is it? Is this verse about an ox really about remuneration for the gospel ministers Paul has gotten carried, or has Paul just gotten kind of carried away? and found a proof text that suits his argument, serves his point, how do we find out? Well, when we find a quote in the New Testament that's from the Old Testament, we go back to the Old Testament, right? That quote is just a handle on a whole suitcase. We bring the whole suitcase up, and we open it up to find out what that whole Old Testament passage, what that whole Old Testament theme is exploring. So let's turn to Deuteronomy chapter 25. And, you know, while you're turning there, we might expect to find in Deuteronomy one of these passages about laws about animals, right? Uh, about oxen, sheep, and goats falling in ditches and whether or not you could pull them out. Uh, but that's not what the passage is about at all. The passage is about preserving the dignity of men, not ox. So look at the verses just before the verse about the ox. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 1 to 3. If there is a dispute between men and they come into court and the judge decides between them, acquitting the innocent and condemning the guilty, then if the guilty man deserves to be beaten, oh no, this isn't looking good, but, but this is justice, right? That's what it's being described to us here. The judge shall cause him to lie down and be beaten in his presence with a number of stripes in proportion to his offense. Forty stripes may be given him, but not more, lest... 
If one should go on to beat him with more stripes than these, your brother be degraded in your sight. Proportionate justice is being administered to the offender. He's guilty. He's shamed. But he is not to be further degraded. What dignity he has is to be preserved. Now, now look at the verses just after the verse about the ox. By the way, there it is in verse 4. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. Pick up in verse 5. If brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as his wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. This is what we understand to be the right of leveret marriage. If a man dies before he has children, his unmarried brother is to marry his widow, and the dead man's name and property go to that son as the sole heir. Why? To preserve the dignity of the man who died. You see? The passage is about preserving and not degrading the dignity of human beings. It's the lone verse about the ox, which is the one that stands out as odd. What's that doing in the middle of this context? And so that's what Paul explains. When the ox is, is yoked you know, to a wooden arm, it's connected to a big stone, and he's walking around in a circle, treading out the grain... And every now and then, he's allowed to bend over and, and chew some grain and, and keep on working because he feeds himself and gets some nutrients. He's allowed to do that. Is it about the ox? Is Deuteronomy chapter 25, the first half of it anyway, about the ox? Well, yeah, in a way, but more. It was written for our sake. Because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. It is about the gospel preacher. It is about the apostles' rights. Now, because you're already thinking this, as a matter of application, I'll just go ahead and say this. It is a congregation's duty to preserve the dignity of the man who preaches the gospel by making sure he and his family have enough to eat. I'm for that. That is a principle of Scripture about dealing with people in terms of their dignity and with integrity, not expecting people, in this case the preacher, to do something for nothing. That's what Paul's saying. And then Paul throws in a little zinger, doesn't he? If others share in this rightful claim on you, don't we even more? I mean, I think Paul is referring to the Corinthians' willingness to pay money to the, the professional orators, the eloquent debaters of his age, whose worldly wisdom is foolishness to God. If they have a claim on your money, don't we have, don't we have even more of a foundational claim for support? So the apostle says, I have rights too. Everyday common sense says that. Scripture says that. And Jesus says that. In verse 13, Paul tests their strong knowledge 
again by saying, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Now, the Old Testament priests and Levites who served in the temple are a biblical example of the very servants of God having the right to eat portions of the offerings in the temple. But this is, this is Paul's final and strongest argument to the Corinthians in defense of his rights. The Lord Jesus commands that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And Paul is most likely referring to Jesus sending out of the twelve in Matthew chapter 10 or the sending out of the seventy in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus instructs them not to take any provisions or money with them but to receive what the people whom they minister to give them. For the laborer is worthy of his wages, says Jesus. Paul seals his defense of his rights to compensation from the congregation by saying that those who labor in the gospel should be provided the material benefits necessary to continue their labor in that work because the Lord Jesus Christ commanded it. Surely the Corinthians are convinced by now beyond the shadow of a doubt, that Paul has this right. That's what Paul's hammering on this for. He wants them to understand he has rights too, because they're the, they're the Corinthians, right? Oh, we have this right. We don't have to give up our rights. We get to eat meat. We don't care about the weaker brother. you got to convince those. Paul has to convince them that he has rights. And that's why he spent most of this time explaining that he has rights as an apostle. Rights that they're there to fulfill. Then Paul says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. What's Paul saying? Is he criticizing the other apostles for receiving support? No, not at all. In some towns... Paul himself received support from the local congregation. And in some towns, Paul received support as he labored there from other congregations who sent it to him. And in some towns, like Corinth, Paul worked to support himself. Remember in Acts chapter 18, he worked with Priscilla and Aquila in their tent-making business there in Corinth. We would say Paul, Paul worked bivocationally. Why did he do that? What is it about receiving money from the church in Corinth that would be an obstacle to the gospel? Because that's what he's saying. Now, we've already seen how some of the divisions in the church break along the lines of wealth and poverty, right? Paul's financial support would most likely come from the wealthy in the church. Maybe even from from these stronger brothers. And this would follow the cultural norm of patronage in those days. That there was a patron who would support Paul. And this is all something that Paul refused from the beginning. From the moment he entered Corinth, he knew this would be an obstacle to these people. Because in preaching Christ crucified, he's going to offend everybody. The gospel's a stumbling block. And in discipling sinners in the church, he's going to be critical of their sin. And anything that got in the way of that 
like a pastor's salary, would be an obstacle to that gospel. So when Paul refused their patronage, you need to understand that 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 was offensive to them. It's because of his refusal of this right in verse 12 that he's having to put up with, with everything, he says, with all kinds of indignation. But Paul is free to preach the gospel and let the chips fall where they may. You see? Now you begin to see what Paul's illustrating. Just as the stronger brothers in the church should forego their rights to eat meat so that the faith of their weaker brothers would not be damaged or destroyed. In the same way, Paul forgoes his right to financial support so that the gospel will not be obstructed but allowed to run free. Paul is saying that it is his right to have it. And it is also his right not to use it. It's not their choice to deny the gospel preacher is right. It's not their choice to do that, but it is his choice to refuse it. And that's what Paul does. Pick up in verse 15. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. But I make no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure such a provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I, I like that part at the beginning where Paul says that he's not writing to demand back payment. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not writing to demand back payment of, of 18 months' salary uh, that I'm still due from four years ago, uh, you know, back in Acts chapter 18. No, Paul is writing to explain that there is a reward to boast or glory in, in sacrificing your rights for the sake of others. Can Paul boast because he preaches the gospel? No, because he's just doing the job that he's been called to do. What can Paul take to heart as his reward? That in surrendering his rights, he preaches the gospel free of charge. Paul would rather endure anything, even death, than be deprived of the reward of preaching in such a way that the gospel is unhindered and runs free. And this is the thing that it took to make that happen in Corinth, for him to forego support. Here's an application. You see, this is what's supposed to happen in the church. I'm to preach the gospel with integrity, and you are to receive the gospel with integrity. You see, it's the integrity of the gospel that's at stake. I must preach it. You must receive it. We all must submit ourselves to the word of God so that we as a church do not present any stumbling block 
but the gospel itself. So as I preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to you, that He is the Son of God, who came down and took on the form of man, to humble Himself to die on a cross, to propitiate God's wrath against you and your sin, do you receive it? Dear friend, believe the gospel. Believe in Jesus. Respond by repenting of your sins against a holy God. Bow down your will and your way and submit to the will of God that is for you in Christ. Have salvation. Have life forever in Him. Paul wants the Corinthians to see by his example that in their own situation, they too can have the reward of sacrificing their right in order to further the gospel in the lives of their weaker brethren. See the parallel? That is how they are to pursue love that builds up the church. Paul says, stop pursuing knowledge and being puffed up. Pursue love and build up the church. And isn't it obvious that Paul is following the example of someone else? Of Jesus. Jesus sacrificed his rights and endured the cross in order to save sinners. In this way, Jesus made himself a servant. It's the call to worship that Chris read for us this morning. Pick up in verse 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings." Now, of all the verses in this passage, the one we remember the most is, I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I'm wagering that's the case. That verse is the evangelical mantra for the church growth movement and for the seeker-sensitive movement and has been for the last 50 years. Those evangelical movements apply those words to the church, and they say, you know what? The church has to change. They say that in order to be successful, the modern church in America needs to become all things to all people and use all means to win some. And we have to do it, they say, for the sake of the gospel. 
It's right here in 1 Corinthians for you to see. But that's not what I see. I remember back in the 1990s being told that's what I should see in order to be seeker-sensitive and in order to grow the church. And, and I, I do want to be sensitive. And I do want to see the church grow. But that's not what I see in these verses. I see that verse 19 is the main verse. Not only has Paul surrendered his rights for the sake of the gospel, Paul has surrendered his freedom for the sake of the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have willingly, voluntarily, purposefully, made myself a servant to all. Why would Paul do that? In hopes that I might win more of them. More than what? More than if I maintained my freedom and did not become a gospel servant to them. Now, Scott, I saw what you did there. You, you tossed the word gospel and attached it to servant. Of course I did. This whole passage is about the gospel. Preserving the gospel so that it runs free. Applying the gospel to evangelism since it is the gospel that is the only thing that saves. See, only a free man can make himself a slave. And Paul's strategic means in evangelism is to use his freedom to serve others. Not to serve himself. That's something that the Corinthians, and we, frankly, struggle to do. This is not about the church having a cutting-edge contemporary worship service that pleases the culture. This is about you and I being willing to set aside our freedoms in order to serve other people with the gospel. That's what this is about. Paul is a Christian who becomes as a Jew in order to win Jews who are under the Old Testament law with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is a Christian who becomes as a Gentile in order to win Gentiles who are not under the Old Testament law to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul is compelled to do this because he's not under because he is under the law of Christ, which is the law of love. That's why he says love's better. Is Paul flexing a little bit here? Flexing a little bit there? In order to not be a stumbling block to the gospel? Yes. And he's free to do so. He's free to observe the Old Testament dietary laws when he sits down with a Jewish friend. He can do that. It'll accommodate that Jewish friend. The, the, Jews, the Jews just wanted to throw up when they watched a Gentile eat. It was disgusting to them. Paul's free to go to the Isthmian games and cheer for a Spartan runner with his Gentile friend and have a corn dog on a stick. He can do that. It's okay for him to do that and accommodate his, his Spartan cheering friend. He is, as far as he can, accommodating each person. He is not accommodating culture for his own sake. You understand the difference. 
He's not changing how he behaves so that culture won't be mad at him for being a Christian. I think that's where we get tripped up, because that's usually what we're talking about when we talk about accommodating, becoming as a Jew and becoming as a Gentile. That's usually where we go. Paul is serving the gospel, which already is its own stumbling block, to each person. He's not trying to serve the gospel in a way that will save him from culture's judgment on that gospel and on him. That's not accommodation. That's corruption. You see the difference? Paul remains distinctly Christian in his living and in his evangelism. So, I know what you're wondering. You're wondering, what what you have to do as a Christian to accommodate the unbelievers around you? And the honest answer is, not much. Not much. If you're an American, living in America... You don't have much movement to accommodate people. You're already there. You're living in your culture. Now, if you're moving around in America, you may need to flex a bit. The country's different than the city. New England is different than the Deep South, so you might compensate for some regional differences like that. Now, if you've moved to America from India, or from Africa, or from South Central America, That's a little different. It's a little different for you, isn't it? I mean, you're just trying to figure out how to live among these Americans. And your brothers and sisters in the church should help you. And you can help your brothers and sisters in the church to better understand and serve your fellow transplants from India and Africa and wherever else. Because we should want to be gospel servants to them. But accommodating people as a gospel servant is not the same as accommodating their sin. That's the other place we get tripped up. You are not free to participate in sin or give approval to it. That's not what Paul's talking about. Don't let their sin become a stumbling block to you. You must maintain, you must remain gloriously different than those around you and distinctly Christian. We are not free to set aside gospel principles to be accommodating. We are not free to set aside gospel truths so that others don't find us offensive. It is not the gospel that is called to be accommodating. It is you and me who are called to be accommodating in this particular way. We're to accommodate by being willing to become gospel servants to others. That's what Paul's telling us to do. Which isn't our first inclination, is it? (laughs) You know, you and I want to be strong. We, We want to be strong, Christians, so we can influence our culture. We want the church to be powerful so that the church will change culture. And Paul is asking us how willing we are to use our Christian freedom to make ourselves servants to others, to make ourselves weak for others, to evangelize both Jew and Gentile, which, is, which means everybody. And then he adds the weak. Who are these weak? Some think that the weak are, are unbelievers too. Maybe they're the poor and downtrodden in society. 
But I think they are the same week that we've been reading about in chapter 8, which led into chapter 9. They're new believers. They're recent converts to Christianity. And Paul is a servant to them as well. Paul sets aside his freedom not only to evangelize Jew and Gentile, he also sets aside his freedom to serve weak Christians in order to build them up in the faith so that they would become mature Christians. That's what he's asking the Corinthians to do. Which means that being a gospel servant is not limited to evangelizing the lost. It carries itself right into the church. Look again at Paul's words. He becomes as a Jew. But he does not become a Jew. Paul's a Christian. He becomes as a Gentile. But he does not become a Gentile because he's a Christian. But to the weak, Paul says, I became weak. You hear the difference? I became weak. I didn't become as the weak. I became weak so that I can serve them too. To them, he became weak because Paul actually is weak. Right? Remember in chapter 2 when Paul came preaching the gospel to them? He came in weakness and fear and much trembling. That's what, that's what you see when you look at Paul, but what you experience is a demonstration of the Spirit and of power in his gospel preaching. He came in weakness, but they heard the gospel and placed their faith in the power of God. Paul doesn't say, I'm strong and I'm powerful. Be like me. No, Paul comes to them not like a free man, but like a slave. A servant to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul comes to them like a broken and cracked jar of clay. He comes to them weak because he wants them to see Jesus and grow in Jesus and mature in Jesus. Paul is willing to give up his freedom so that the gospel is free in order to more effectively serve others and win some. Now, what's the motivation? Why? It's not just because Jesus told him so. He says he has a motivation. Look at verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. That I may share with them in its blessings. Paul wants this reward. He wants to have a share in the gospel. Paul wants to share in his salvation in the gospel. Paul wants to share in the salvation of the Jews and the Gentiles. He's won to Christ through the gospel. Paul wants to share in the gospel maturing of the weak in the church whom he's still serving to win. It's all for the sake of the gospel. It's not for the sake of his freedoms. Paul is completely wrapped up in this gospel. How can we be like that? How can we be like that? Specifically, how can I make myself a gospel servant to all so that I might win some? Pick up in verse 24. That's what verse 24 is about. 
Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now remember that Corinth has the Isthmian Games, right? Athens has the Olympics on Mount Olympus. Corinth is on an isthmus, a narrow strip of land, and they have the Isthmian Games there. They're held every two years, and there was running and jumping, boxing and wrestling, horse and chariot events, and that's what Paul's picturing for us here. You know what this looks like, Corinthians. It's like the Isthmian Games. The athletes would spend a whole year preparing for these contests and competitions. We get our word athlete from the Greek word agonize. Because these athletes agonize, they struggle, they exert great effort in their sport. See, this is more than just a couch to 5K. In order to compete, they had to deny themselves. They had to surrender their freedoms to eat what they want. They had to make themselves run and push and lift and pull every day, practicing every day to run or to box. You see, it just doesn't happen. It doesn't come naturally. But they did all of this for honor. Honor represented by a crown of leaves that would fade, dry up, and blow away like dust. So, why don't we agonize to serve others with the gospel that saves and sanctifies them? Paul recognizes that even as Christians, we don't really want to serve others. All right, cat's out of the bag. Sorry. We're not born that way. Just like the Corinthians, denying ourselves doesn't come naturally to us, doesn't come easily to us. Just admit it. I admit it. We're not called to sit on the sidelines and say, oh, look at the imperishable wreath. I look forward to the day when Jesus gives me that servant's crown and says, well done. But until then, I think I'm just going to sit here comfortably and anonymously on the sidelines. No. We have to actually serve in daily living. Serve in sacrifice to love others with the gospel. We have to get in the game. He's not saying, by the way, that only one Christian wins the race. That was probably bothering some of you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, see the one who wins, run like him. That's what he's saying. The apostle himself fights to make himself a servant. I discipline my body and keep it under control. Paul has to do that. Like an Olympic runner, Paul trains every day, eating the breakfast of champions, running fast, running far. He's disciplined to do what's necessary to win the race so he can run that way. Like an Olympic boxer, or an Isthmian boxer, I should say. Paul practices and focuses his skills. He's not swinging his arms in the air aimlessly. 
He knows his target and he aims at it. And what is Paul's target? This is important. What is Paul fighting? Paul is fighting against his natural tendency to indulge his freedoms and instead make himself a servant to others. That's the fight. Paul is fighting to make himself serve. But more, Paul is fighting to make himself a servant. You see? It's not just that Paul makes his body do chores. You know, like, maybe like us. Well, I, I clean the church and I make coffee and I help with kids on a rotational basis. Those are good things. But they do not fulfill what Paul is calling us to do. What Paul is calling us to become. Paul is calling us to have a servant's heart, soul, mind, and strength. Because we are in Christ, we are free to serve others. Not to serve them aimlessly, but to serve them with the gospel. Look again at verse 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. What does Paul mean? Having preached the gospel, how could Paul find himself disqualified? Well, here's what you need to know. Paul is going to discuss idolatry as a reason for disqualification in chapter 10. This is very important to your understanding of chapter 9. Because verse 27 is setting up Paul's warning against idolatry in the chapter that follows. It is not something to be applied to the chapter we just read. Idolatry is going to be the disqualifier. He's going to talk about that later. But if you apply the disqualification to this race that he's been talking about, you've, you've made an error. You've changed the game. Don't do that. And yet, the nature of this disqualification is actually very encouraging. Because since Paul uses a race analogy, the idea of a disqualification makes us realize that there is a finish line. But what is it? What is the finish line? See, I think we have a tendency to read these verses and to use the imagery of a race and the imperishable crown to say, well, that's when, that's when we get to heaven. When we cross the, the finish line of life, that's what's, that's what's happening. But that's not how Paul is using this analogy. Paul is using this analogy or this metaphor to encourage us to make ourselves gospel servants. That's the, that's the matter at hand. That's the context. So what is the wreath? What is the prize? What is the reward for running and punching for the gospel's sake? What is the reward for disciplining our freedom and controlling ourselves as gospel servants? Because that's what that's about. Well, the reward for that is still back in verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them 
in its blessings. Now, I'll let you in on a little study. The word blessings is not actually in the original Greek. The English translators are, are, are trying to make grammatical sense for us by writing it this way. But it would be a little closer to read it this way. I do all things for the sake of the gospel, so I may become a fellow partaker. So you see why they added the phrase, right? Fellow partaker of what? The gospel. That is, a fellow partaker in the gospel itself. A participant in the gospel itself. A runner with the gospel itself. Paul's goal and reward is to be a participant in the gospel as a servant. Paul says, Paul says a similar thing in a very similar context in Philippians chapter 3, verse 14. You've probably heard this before. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Do you hear it? I press on toward the goal for the prize, which is what? Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see, the goal or reward is the effort of serving the upward call, which is the gospel itself. It's as if Paul is saying that we, in a sense, we are already in the finish line. When we live as gospel servants, when we live as Christ. I'm in the finish line, in my service, in my participation, in my preaching of, in my living out of the gospel itself. With others. It's a fellowship. In Christ. Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He, Jesus, will not one day say, good job, you were so strong and formidable down there. He will not say, kudos to you, you were so powerful and persuasive down there. No. He will say to those who though they were free from all, made themselves gospel servants to all, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we bless you for your word. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. And we praise you that you have called us to participate in his gospel. To give our lives to the gospel. To orient our lives around gospel service to others. To not make our lives about ourselves and our rights and our freedoms. But to use those things to serve others with the gospel. We pray that you would take our service and make much of it in the salvation of the lost and in the building up of your church. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen.